Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. As you may know, if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, we use these Friday episodes to feature lectures and different series of lectures from James Jordan. And today, since we are in between series with Jim, we're going to break things up by offering a talk that Peter Lightheart gave back in 1999 on the topic of postmillennial salvation. As always, please do check out those links in the show notes for upcoming events, links to our social media handles and our YouTube channel. And I've also put a link down there today to articles on our website that deal with eschatology and postmillennialism, as that is an important part of our work here at Theopolis. We really hope that you enjoy this talk, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here's Peter Lightheart discussing postmillennial salvation. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word, and we pray for your blessing upon us. Send your spirit upon us that we might learn of you and of your ways and be more faithful disciples of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. I don't have a text to work from today. Instead, what I'm going to do is something more topical, thematic. It's hard to teach a Sunday school class on a text when I try to think of a text and Jim hasn't covered in great detail and there's nothing left. So I've been thinking about eschatology because of the conference coming up this week. And so I thought I'd do something that's somewhat connected with the conference topic, but on the other hand, I didn't want to steal my thunder for the week's lecture, so I'm going to be doing something kind of tangential to the topic that we're studying at the Biblical Horizons Conference. And I wanted to look at a couple of general themes. I think one of the difficulties we have in making our case for post-millennialism is the fact that our debates and discussions circulate around a handful of fairly controversial and often difficult texts. We reason from the book of Revelation. We try to defend our position there. We try to defend our position from passages in Isaiah that are difficult. We defend our position from Matthew 24 and other texts. And that the church's concentration on those texts sometimes is a detraction or distraction from the center of the debate about eschatology. The church has always been divided concerning eschatology. Our century is not different except perhaps in degree in that regard. Right from the first few centuries you have differences of detail about what the church was expecting to happen in the future. You have some early church fathers that were proto-premillennialists, some that sound like post-millennialists at times, and Augustine who's usually classified as being an amillennialist. So the church has never been united on this subject, and that is related to the fact that we concentrate, I think, on these controversial and difficult texts. Another related fact about contemporary debate on eschatology, I'm not sure what the cause and effect is, but related to the fact that there's divisions is the fact that eschatology is treated as somewhat of a secondary concern. Eschatology is secondary to issues that are at the heart of the gospel, justification by faith, the deity of Christ, and so forth. I certainly don't want to unchurch anyone, but I think it's important to see that eschatology is a central concern and central to a full understanding of the gospel. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the gospel is an eschatological announcement. That's something you hear frequently from amillennialist writers, Voss, your hardest boss, contemporary writer Richard Gaffin, 
say similar things, that the gospel is thoroughly eschatological. And what they mean is that the age to come, the future kingdom, has broken into the present age. So there's an overlap of the age to come, the future age, and the present age. And I agree with that, but at the same time, I think we can say something stronger than that, that the gospel is not just an announcement that the age to come has broken in to the present age, but the gospel entails certain expectations about the future. To put it more sharply, I would say that the gospel is, not just implies, but is an announcement of the victory of God. And if we're not preaching a gospel of victory, then we're not preaching the biblical New Testament gospel. I think if we argue our case from that perspective, if we argue our case from basic truths of the gospel, then we might have a better chance, or at least we're coming at it from a different angle than we normally do, concentrating on texts that had divided the church for many, many centuries. So what I want to do this morning is look at a couple of basic themes in the New Testament and look at these themes and look at these truths of the New Testament against the background of what the Old Testament teaches about them. And when we look at the New Testament announcement, the New Testament gospel, against the background of the Old Testament, then many of the words and terms and events that we just take as a matter of course take on a wholly new feel, a wholly new dimension. And what I want to look at this morning is, first of all, the idea of salvation. There's nothing, perhaps, so clear in the New Testament that the gospel is an announcement of salvation. When the gospel is preached, salvation is preached. The way of salvation is preached. Jesus is the Savior. His name means Savior, and he came into the world, the New Testament says, to save sinners. When Simeon saw the baby Jesus in the temple, he said that my eyes have seen your salvation. When the apostles preached in the book of Acts, they preached the name of Jesus as the only name in which there is salvation. And Paul, at the beginning of Romans, in a very famous text, says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I don't think I need to establish that the New Testament gospel is a gospel of salvation. But I think we're often too quick to assume that we all agree on what salvation means. The gospel announces salvation for the world, salvation for the elect. But what does salvation entail? What does that mean? And we have to look at the Old Testament to determine that. And one of the key terms for salvation, as you probably know in the Old Testament, is Yasha, the name Yeshua comes from it, and various other terms are built on that. And it means salvation. Yeshua is the Hebrew version of Jesus' name. But if we look at the way that this word is used in the Old Testament, we begin to see that salvation necessarily entails God's victory. To say that the gospel is an announcement of salvation, then, means that the gospel is an announcement of God's victory over all his enemies and over all our enemies. This is a shorter catechism says when the question, in what way is Jesus a king? One of the things that it says is that he conquers all his and our enemies. And that's entailed in the idea of salvation. There are two ways we can look at this in the Old Testament. One is to look at places where the, the word group Yeshua or Yesha is used in the Old Testament and is used in context where we in English would use the term victory. It's used in military context. Let's look at a couple of passages where this is the case. In 2 Samuel 23, this is at the end of 2 Samuel after David's psalm in chapter 22. And then there's a list of the deeds 
of David's mighty men, and I want to look at verse 10 first of all. It's talking about Eliezer, the son of Dodo the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle, and the men of Israel had withdrawn. That's verse 9. Verse 10 says, He arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. There the NASB has translated the word as victory, but the word is the same word as is used for salvation. If you have marginal notes, you might have a literal translation in the margin. So you could also translate it, the Lord brought about a great salvation for Israel. But clearly this is in a context where it's a military victory that's being described. So we have the terminology, the word group for salvation that's used in military contexts and is translated as victory. We can go on down to the next story, verses 11 and 12. Now after him came Shammah, uh, the son of Agi, a Hararite, and the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. And again, the same word is used there, and it's the word that elsewhere is translated as salvation. Another place where this word is used in that sense is at uh, the beginning of 2 Kings 5. 2 Kings 5, describing Naaman, who is the Syrian general, who become a leper and comes to Elisha for help. Verse 1 says, Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now, my Bible doesn't have a marginal note in this case, but the word is the same as the word that was used back in 2 Samuel 23. It's still a form that uses Yeshua, or Yesha, at the base. The Lord had given salvation to Aram. We translate it as victory because salvation carries connotations that the translators don't want to import into this particular verse. That's a proper translation to translate it victory, but the point I'm making, of course, is that the same word group that we translate as salvation is translated in these contexts as victory. There may also be a double significance there in some way that Naaman is going to be a Gentile who worships God and somehow is an agent of salvation in a different sense, but in this verse it's talking about his victories over the enemies of Aram. So we have a number of places in the Old Testament where the word group for salvation, Yasha, is used in context where it implies victory and is translated as victory. If you flip that around and make the same point from the opposite angle, even when the word is translated as salvation, the context indicates that it often entails God's victory over his enemies. For example, in Exodus 4, when Israel is trapped between the armies of Pharaoh and the Red Sea, not Exodus 4, Exodus 14, sorry, Exodus 14, verse 13. The people cry out to Moses because they're stuck between the Egyptians and the sea. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see again forever. That's the same word that we've seen in other contexts translated as victory. Here it's translated as salvation or deliverance. Verse 30 has the same word again, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And then in chapter 15, verse 2, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. 
So there we have the word translated as salvation. But if we look at the context, we see that the salvation that the Lord accomplishes for Israel involves God triumphing over the Egyptians, destroying the Egyptians in the sea, delivering his people from their enemies, causing them to pass through the sea to a safe place. So here it's translated salvation, but it entails God's victory over his enemies. And the Psalms are full of this. If you do, just do a study of the terms saved or salvation in the Psalms, you'll find that very frequently the word saved or salvation, savior, is in context where the psalmist is being attacked, the psalmist is crying out for deliverance from his enemies, and when he says, the Lord has brought salvation to me, that means the Lord has conquered my enemies and the Lord has delivered me from them. So I'll just take a few here. Psalm 3, beginning with verse, well, verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord, thy blessing be upon thy people. We have a kind of a motto of the Psalms, frequently quoted verse, salvation belongs to the Lord, but what is going on in context? Verse 7 says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all my enemies on the cheek, thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked, salvation belongs to the Lord. How does the Lord accomplish salvation for his people? How does the Lord accomplish salvation for the psalmist here? It's by smiting his enemies on the cheek and by shattering their teeth. They're pictured as animals that are preying on the psalmist, devouring animals that will tear the psalmist and devour him, but the Lord breaks their teeth so that the enemies can't tear him to pieces. The whole psalm is about the psalmist being attacked and crying out for deliverance from his attackers. And in verse 8 it says, the cry of praise is that salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord has delivered me from my enemies, and he has conquered them. Psalm 35, verse 3. We'll begin with verse 1. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, but with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Let the way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net from me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Okay, this is a cry for the Lord to take vengeance against David's enemies. And that is in verse 3. When the Lord does that, the Lord proves that he is the salvation of his anointed. And he does that by putting on his armor and taking up his weapons and humiliating and bringing dishonor upon those who attack his king. So again, the Lord's salvation is revealed in victory. I skipped over one that I want to look at briefly. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? There's light and salvation in the parallelism of the verse are parallel to the Lord is a defender of his life. Verse 2, When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Again, we have salvation, the word salvation used in a context where it obviously means deliverance from enemies and the Lord gaining victory over the enemies of his people. One final one in Psalm 98 uses salvation in both of these senses. In one case, it's translated as victory. 
in the NASB and the other verses it's translated as salvation. The same word is being used, the same root word is being used, but it's being putting these together shows that the word victory kind of shades over into the word salvation, the word salvation kind of shades over into the word victory. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. And a marginal note could be translated as accomplished salvation. This again is a form of yesha. Verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And I won't go on with that, but the rest of the psalm talks about the Lord coming to judge the nations. And that's why Israel is rejoicing, because the Lord has intervened to judge. So it, making the same point, really, from two different angles about the word salvation. In some cases in the Old Testament, we have words with the root, yasha, translated as victory, because the word is being used in military contexts and other contexts where that is the appropriate English translation. On the other hand, we have the word salvation used. The translators have chosen the word salvation, but it's in context where victory would serve just as well. The two words are interlinked. And when we take this understanding of salvation into the New Testament and learn that the New Testament is announcing the gospel of salvation, the good news of salvation, and when we learn that the head of this new covenant is called Jesus, Yeshua, Savior, Victor is just as good a translation for Yeshua, Jesus, as Savior is, we take all that Old Testament background into the New Testament, then the gospel must be inherently an announcement of God's victory over his enemies and God's victory over the enemies of his people. Now, of course, the response that you'll get from non-postmillennialists, both amillennialists and premillennialists, to that line of argument is that, well, the Old Testament had a more carnal and earthly understanding of salvation, where in the New Testament we have a more spiritual understanding of salvation. But that focuses the debate on an issue that I think is central to all the questions of eschatology, how do the Old and New Covenant relate. But that's where the debate will focus. And you won't be focusing on the eschatological texts, the difficult texts. You'll be focusing on fundamental hermeneutical questions about what kind of covenant the new covenant is. And my own opinion is, of course, that you can't make this kind of dichotomy between a carnal, material old covenant and a spiritual new covenant. You can't say that salvation in the Old Testament meant victory and deliverance from carnal enemies, but in the new covenant it doesn't mean that. I don't think that the New Testament, the Bible, allows us to make that kind of duality or dualism between the two covenants. That's one line of argument, is to trace out the meaning of salvation. Everyone will agree that the gospel is a gospel of salvation. But then you go back to the Bible and ask, well, what does that mean? What does it mean for God to come and save his people? The other thing I want to look at, the other thread I want to follow, and we'll use the same procedure, is to look through the Old Testament and see how this plays out is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And again, everyone, every Christian will agree that the coming of the Spirit is a mark of the New Covenant, it's part of the proclamation of the Gospel. The Gospel is not only that Jesus has come and redeemed his people, but that he has ascended and he has taken his throne, and now he has poured out upon his people the promised Holy Spirit. That's what Peter says in his proclamation, his preaching on the day of Pentecost. He points to an Old Testament passage in Joel 2, which is a promise that the Holy Spirit would come. 
And that's part of Peter's proclamation of the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has ascended, he's taken his throne, and now he's given this gift to his people. But in looking at the Old Testament passage that Peter cites there, we can't just take that isolated promise of the Spirit in Joel 2 out of the context of the whole book of Joel. The coming of the Spirit in the book of Joel is part of a sequence of events that are prophesied and predicted. And when we look at that sequence, Peter is saying that the coming of the Spirit is a sign that this whole package of events is taking place. So I want to look a little bit at Joel's prophecy and see what is that package? What's the sequence of events that the coming of the Spirit marks out? If you know anything about the book of Joel, you know that it's a prophecy concerning a locust plague. The main debate concerning the book of Joel is whether the locust plague is really a locust plague or if the locusts are somehow an image, a picture of an invading army. I'm not going to try to decide that here, and I'm not sure we need to decide it for my purposes. It seems to me that the imagery is all of a real locust plague that's being compared to an invading army rather than the opposite, especially in chapter 2. It's called God's army that's invading, but they are compared to soldiers rather than soldiers being compared to locusts. But we don't really need to resolve that to see the point that I want to make from this. The main effect of this locust plague, according to Joel's prophecy, is that it decimates the land, it robs the land of grapes, of grain, and because it robs the land of grapes and grain, it robs the land of food and festivity. It causes a famine, and it causes gladness and festivity to come to an end in the land. Let's begin looking at Joel 1, beginning with verse 4. You have these various divisions of locusts. What the gnawing locust is left, the swarming locust is eaten. What the swarming locust is left, the creeping locust is eaten. What the creeping locust is left, the stripping locust is eaten. So you have different stages of the decimation of the land. One group of locusts leaves some greenery, some food left, and then another invasion comes and sweeps through and takes what has been left. Verse 5, Awake drunkards and weep and wail all you wine drinkers on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. Israel is a vine. Israel is a fig tree. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. So first of all, he, he calls on the drunkards to wail and weep because they won't have any wine. The locusts have taken all the vines away. Verse 8, wail like a virgin clothed with sackcloth for a bridegroom of her youth. Israel is called on to wail. The farmers are called on to wail in verse 11. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. But particularly, verse 9 and 10, and then verse 13, the priests are called on to mourn because of this invasion. The locusts have destroyed all grain and all the vines, and the effect is, in verse 9, there is no grain offering or libation. Grain offering and libation are cut off from the house of the Lord, and the priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. Verse 13, Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the libation are withheld from the house of your God. See, this is not just a crisis of agriculture. It's not just a famine that Joel is talking about. It's an interruption of the sacrificial system because the locusts have destroyed the foodstuffs that would go into the sacrifices. So it's a liturgical crisis. It's a crisis of worship and maintaining the sacrifices of the temple. 
So the crucial effect of this invasion of locusts is the elimination of food, and because of that, I should point out later on in chapter 1, verse 16, has not food been cut off before your eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God. There's a drying up of food and therefore drying up of festivity and gladness. And the transition occurs in the middle of chapter 2, verse 18. And the transition is basically one from being consumed to becoming a consumer. Israel has been eaten out of house and home, and the promise is that they will again have enough to eat. They won't be eaten anymore by the locusts, but the Lord will provide food and grain and new wine. And that also means, of course, that the sacrificial system will be restored. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern army far from you. I will drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea, its rear guard into the western sea. Its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad. So there's a movement from mourning to rejoicing. For the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree is born of fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The Lord vindicates Israel, shows that he is faithful to Israel, shows that Israel is his people by restoring their fortunes. Verse 24, The threshing floors will be full of grain, the vats will overflow with new wine and oil, and I'll make up to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you, and you shall have plenty to eat and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. And then you have the prophecy of the outpouring of the Spirit on Israel. So the land is destroyed by the locusts. The Lord becomes zealous for his land, has pity on his people, restores their fortune, pours out his Spirit, and as the prophecy continues in chapter 3, continues to say that the nations will be gathered together and judged. In chapter 2, prior to verse 18, where I started reading, we have a call to repentance. Israel is told to mourn and to fast. It's interesting that the response to... The Lord imposes a fast on Israel. He imposes sackcloth because his army has destroyed their food. And Israel's response to that is to kind of join in with the fast that the Lord has imposed on them. If they fast and they mourn, then the Spirit and the Lord judges the nations. That's all one big sequence of events. That's all one big package. And when Peter preaches on Pentecost and says, now the Spirit is being poured out, what you see and hear here fulfills the prophecy of Joel. He's not just talking about these few isolated verses that are referring to the outpouring of the Spirit. He's talking about the whole transition that Joel describes. And that involves Israel restored. It involves the nations judged, although Joel doesn't use this term. It involves God's victory over the nations and his vindication of his people. That's all involved in the, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is a sign of that, and the coming of the gift of prophecy is a sign of that great transition in the fortunes of the Lord's people 
that has taken place. So the coming of the Spirit is related to these things. It's not an isolated occurrence, but it is the mark that Israel is being vindicated and that the Lord has had pity on his people, on the remnant of his people. And this is not an isolated prophecy in the Old Testament. I'm not going to be so bold as to say invariably, but I'll say almost invariably, when the Holy Spirit is promised in the Old Testament, it's part of this same sequence of events. The Spirit is promised not as an isolated event where the Spirit is poured out so that we have fellowship with God. That's true, but that's not all that's being said. When the Old Testament promises the Spirit, it also means that Israel is going to be reborn and restored, and the nations are going to be judged, and God is going to gain victory. Let's briefly look at a few other passages where this is brought out. Isaiah 32, and I can't figure out how Isaiah all fits together, so I can't really give you a context for this very well, but Isaiah 32, beginning with verse 9, just a few verses here that I think will make the point. The first verses 9 through 14 are a description of a judgment coming of a land that is made waste and women who are mourning and perhaps even being taken into slavery. And then there's a transition at verse 15. Let me begin in verse 9. Rise up, you women who are at ease, and hear my voice. Give ear to my word, you complacent daughters. Within a year and a few days you will be troubled, O complacent daughters, for the vintage is ended and the fruit gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent daughters. Strip, undress, and put sackcloth on your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up. Yea, for all the joyful houses and for the jubilant city, because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken. Hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks. Similar kinds of imagery uh, to what we found in Joel, destruction of the fruitful vine and of the fields, thorns and thistles, thorns and briars coming up in their place. The city, instead of being joyful and jubilant, is abandoned and becomes a haunt for wild animals instead of for people. So the city and the land are being given over to the wilderness. Until, verse 15 says, until the Spirit is poured out from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field. And the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness quietness and confidence forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. It will hail when the forest comes down, and the city will be utterly laid low. How blessed will you be, you who sow beside all waters, who let out freely the ox and the donkey. What forms the transition from the wilderness to a renewed garden? It's the outpouring of the Spirit. And it's not just the agricultural imagery that's being used there, there's a transition from wilderness to garden, but justice will be established, and righteousness will abide in the land, and that will produce peace. So there are, you could say, socio-political implications. When the Spirit is poured out, there's this great transition in the fortunes of Israel. The nation that has been dried up and turned to wilderness is transformed into a garden. And whatever the immediate reference of this prophecy, I'm not sure what Isaiah is referring to, but the ultimate fulfillment of this has to be the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the Spirit coming in the New Covenant. So looking at Pentecost in the light of this passage, we have to say that the outpouring of the Spirit marks out and affects the transition 
in the fortunes of God's people and affects the transition in the history of the world. Ezekiel 36, yes sir, thank you, I'll read that for the tape. Woe to you, O destroyer, while you were not destroyed. He who was treacherous while others did not deal treacherously with him. As soon as you shall finish destroying, you shall be destroyed. As soon as you shall cease to deal treacherously, others shall deal treacherously with you. So there again is the notion of victory and overturning of Israel's enemies as we go into chapter 33. Ezekiel 36 is another prominent prophecy of the coming of the Spirit in the Old Testament. This is a passage I think we probably all know quite well. I must have looked at it a number of times. I've spilled coffee all over my page. Got stains all over it. The prophecy of the Spirit comes in verse 27, but let me read a few verses leading up to that. Beginning in verse 22, it says, Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which you have profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. There will be a return from exile. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. And I think the immediate reference of these chapters of Ezekiel is to the restoration of Israel from Babylonian exile and their return to the land after that 70-year exile. But the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy of the gift of the Spirit and the gift of a new heart is in the New Covenant. And this is a well-known passage to covenant theologians. We go here to show that this is one of the places where we find some of the promises that are associated with the coming of Christ and of the Spirit. But again, we can't take these few verses in isolation from everything else that's going on in this section of Ezekiel. It's not just a matter of the Spirit being poured out to give us hearts that are obedient, but that is part of a massive transition in the history of Israel and in the history of the world. If you look back a few chapters early on in Ezekiel, or about chapter 25 in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is told that he will, I, I won't, you don't have to go back that far. In Ezekiel 25, he's told that his mouth will not be opened and he will not speak, he will be dumb until the city of Jerusalem falls. And then you have several chapters where the word of the Lord is delivered to the nations and not to Israel. So Ezekiel continues to prophesy, but he's no longer prophesying to Israel until the city of Jerusalem falls. Once it falls, then he opens his mouth, and the next chapters are all prophecies of restoration to Israel. That begins around chapter 33. And chapter 34, if you just page through these chapters with me, chapter 34 is a prophecy against the shepherds of Israel and their abuse of the sheep. But it's also a promise that the Lord himself will become the shepherd of his people. The Lord himself will shepherd Israel. So you have a transition in Israel's leadership there from false shepherds who devour the sheep to a good shepherd who will feed the sheep. Chapter 36, we've already read part of, which includes a prophecy of restoration from exile and a promise of the outpouring of the Spirit. Chapter 37 is a famous passage which describes the Valley of Dry Bones and the resurrection of the dry bones which in context refers to the resurrection of Israel and their restoration from the dead. 
They've been in exile. They've been in a state of national death, and they will experience a national resurrection. The rest of that chapter in 37 is about the reunion of Israel and Judah, which had been divided since shortly after the days of Solomon. These two sticks of Israel and Judah will be tied back together, and they won't be parted again. Chapters 38 and 39 are about, Jim will tell you what these chapters are specifically about, but they are chapters about a great battle and a great victory, and then chapters 40 through 48 are about the rebuilding of the temple. So the, the promise of the outpouring of the Spirit is set in that context, and we can't take one piece out and say, this is now fulfilled in the New Covenant, but the rest of it isn't. All of that is being fulfilled, and all of that is being marked out and signified by the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Okay, one last passage, and then I'll quit. I'm sure I'm beating a dead horse and certainly speaking to the choir, but perhaps this give you a helpful angle with uh, people who don't, who aren't part of the choir, <laughs> part of our choir at least. Zechariah 12 and following is again a promise of the outpouring of the Spirit. Verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And then it describes the weeping and the mourning of different sectors of Israel. Again, a, a promise of the outpouring of the Spirit, which will cause repentance among the people of Israel. But that, again, is just one stage in a sequence of events that includes chapter 13, describes the opening of a fountain that will cleanse the land. The elimination of false prophets is described in chapter 13. There's a great battle at the beginning of chapter 14, and the Lord intervenes to deliver Jerusalem. The nations, and later in chapter 14, are invited and come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Booths, and those who don't do that are plagued, and so the Lord accomplishes a great deliverance for his people and a great salvation and a great victory. So the outpouring of the Spirit in chapter 12 is part of that whole sequence, as it has been in the other passages we've looked at. So, I know I've summarized many times already, but let me finish up by summarizing one last time. I think that taking this angle on eschatology may have some apologetic value. It's perhaps coming at things from a different angle from the way we generally argue eschatology. And I think if we are able to show that looked at biblically, essential elements of the gospel imply a victory for Christ and for his church. If we can show that from these passages of the Old Testament, which I think we can, then we can not only show that eschatology is exceedingly important to our proclamation of the gospel, but also maybe at least put our brethren who think differently somewhat off balance instead of looking at those more controversial texts. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.